Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are in the room live, watching live online or later on demand, or even listening to our podcast, we've been praying that you would experience the life-changing power of God in your life today. If this is your first time visiting Dayspring, we want you to know that this is the kind of church where you get to be you. There's no need to pretend that everything's perfect in your life. It's certainly not an hour's. We are regular people on a journey, allowing Jesus to make something beautiful out of our broken and often messy lives. We're learning to live like Jesus, a little more today than yesterday, a little more tomorrow than today. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. That team is made up of people committed to helping you grow. People grow here because our team loves to challenge, encourage, and equip people to become more like Jesus. So if you're on that journey too, we're looking forward to lending a hand. And even if you aren't sure that you're ready to be on that journey with us, maybe you're skeptical about the claims of Jesus or skeptical of his followers. Well, this is still a great place, a safe place to explore and ask questions as you look for answers. We're asking questions and looking for answers too. So I think we can be pretty good company on your journey. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Now, let's join our service. Well, I am standing here today because 48 years ago, Roberta Shorb loved Jesus and children enough to host a backyard vacation Bible school. And somehow, I was invited. You're here today because at some point in your life, someone had the courage to invite you to consider following Jesus as a way of life. Most of you watching online have had the same experience, unless you ended up watching because of some random scroll through internet land. And if that's the case, now I am inviting you to consider following Jesus as a way of life. So now we're all here because of that, because of an invitation. The big churchy word for it is evangelism. But that's what evangelism is, really. It's an invitation to consider building your life on the truth of Jesus Christ. When it comes to invitations in the context of evangelism, people over the age of 50 often think about the great Billy Graham. Over the course of his ministry, Billy preached the good news to some 215 million people through his more than 400 crusades in more than 185 countries. In 2005, a Gallup poll reported that 35 million people in America, one in six, had heard Billy Graham preach in person. If you were in church during the 1960s and 70s, uh, when I used the word evangelism, you might think of going door to door, telling people about Jesus. You might think of that little tract we all carried around titled Four Spiritual Laws. I say we all carried around. I was not alive in most of the 60s, so don't, you know. Everyone else carried around. Uh, and the, the invitation to pray a sinner's prayer. 
On the other hand, if you're under 30 years old, you might think of evangelism as pushing your beliefs on someone else. That's how uh, our culture has influenced a generation about evangelism. It's not okay to push your beliefs on someone else. You have, you have the truth, your truth, and they have their truth. But what if your truth is the truth? And as truth has the power to impact someone's life for eternity. I make it seem really simple, don't I? I mean, it certainly seems like it should be simple. So why isn't it? The command to evangelize is pretty straightforward. It's one of the most basic beliefs of almost every Bible-believing church. Matthew records Jesus', this, uh, Jesus words this way in Matthew chapter 28. Uh, he writes this. Uh, Jesus said this after the uh, resurrection. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, the Gospel of Mark says it even more simply. Mark writes, and then he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. Go and tell. Go into the world and preach the good news to everyone. And just what is this good news Mark writes about? It's Jesus. The good news is that Jesus, that God loves us so much that he sent his only son to die in our place for our sins. And through his resurrection to conquer death for everyone who believes in Jesus. Why is something so seemingly simple in concept so maddeningly complex in practice? Why do most of us get tongue-tied just thinking about it? Getting ready for this series, I asked a bunch of people what they thought about when I said the word evangelism. The most common answers could be boiled down to one four-letter word. Fear. F-E-A-R. Fear. I don't know how to start a conversation. I don't know what to say. I'm afraid they'll ask me something I don't know the answer to. I wouldn't know which verses to use. I'm afraid of starting an argument. I'm afraid I'll say something wrong. I'm afraid I will offend them. Do any of those sound familiar to anyone? Welcome to the first message in our series, Magnetic, Activating the Power of Influence. Over the next few weeks, we're going to explore ways that we can intentionally use our influence with people to share the good news in a world that more than ever could benefit from the good news of Jesus. And while we're at it, we're going to try to reframe the way we think about evangelism. We're going to try to broaden our perspective of evangelism so that we can stop letting fear lead the way. Now, let me set the stage for where we're going. The Apostle Paul was the founder of the church in Corinth, one of the epicenters of the Roman Empire back in the first century. As the seat of power for the Roman province of Achaia, which was most of Greece, it was one of the most influential cities. Its location on the isthmus between the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea connected the southern mainland of Greece and the Peloponnesian Islands with northern Greece, making it a hub of commercial activity which also meant that its population was as diverse as any cosmopolitan city in today's times. 
Uh, Many different religions existed side by side, resulting in mixed and merged religious beliefs. There were numerous temples to various little g gods, including the great temple to Aphrodite, the fertility goddess worshipped in ancient Greece. It was the pit of Greek moral corruption. It had more than its share of depravity and was a cesspool of self-indulgence. Sound familiar? It was, it was here in Corinth that Paul met Priscilla and Aquila, two people who, would sh- who shared his heart for the gospel and who became lifelong friends and partners in ministry. About a year and a half into the founding of the church, some of the people who had been causing Paul grief in Galatia made their way to Corinth and began stirring up trouble once again. And though they found no, no support from the proconsul of Achaia, the trouble did lead Paul to head toward Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila. From there, Paul left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus and returned to his home city, uh, his home church of Antioch by way of Caesarea and Jerusalem. Uh, the book of Acts tells us that a gifted teacher named Apollos made his way to Ephesus where he met Priscilla and Aquila. Apollos was boldly and passionately teaching what he knew about Jesus, but what he knew was incomplete. So Priscilla and Aquila discipled this young teacher, equipping him for more effective ministry in Corinth, which was his destination after Ephesus. We know from 1 Corinthians that in their immaturity, the the Corinthians began to argue among themselves as to who was the better teacher, Paul or Apollos. They separated themselves into camps, Team Paul and Team Apollos, with a few of them taking the high road, opting for Team Peter, who hadn't even been to Corinth. As you might guess, Paul was unhappy with this division. So he spends the first three chapters of, the, of his first letter to the Corinthians rebuking the church for allowing division to take them off course. Which is all the background we need to understand these next verses from chapter 3. Beginning with verse 5, Paul writes, After all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose, and both will be rewarded for their own hard work. For we are both God's workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. Now, let's focus on a couple of sentences in the middle. First, at the end of verse 5, each of us did the work the Lord gave us. Though Paul is specifically talking about himself and Apollos, we can extrapolate this out to us. When it comes to evangelism, we all play a God-designed role in the process. We all have divine appointments or assignments And those assignments come next in verse 6. I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it. In some of our divine appointments, we will plant seeds. And in some of our divine appointments, we will water seeds. But our responsibility ends there. Paul ends this verse, but it was God who made it grow. In some divine appointments we plant, in some divine appointments we water, God does the rest. I have my responsibility, you have your responsibility. All of us have responsibility. No one gets off the hook. But in the end, the harvest, if you will, is up to God. 
Now, before we put all of this together, let's look at one of the parables of Jesus. The parable of the sower is familiar to most of us. It shows up in the gospel accounts of, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And today, let's look at Mark's version of it, uh, of, the, of the parable. We find uh, it in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seed. As he scattered it across his field, some of the seed fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate it. Other seed fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seed sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow. But the plant soon wilted under the hot sun, and since it didn't have deep roots, it died. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants, so they produced no grain. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they sprouted, grew, and produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as been planted. And then drop down to verse 14 for the explanation. Uh, the farmer plants seed by taking God's word to others. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message only to have Satan come at once and take it away. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. The seed that fell among the thorns represents others who hear God's word. But all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the worries of this life, the lure of wealth and the desire for other things. So no fruit is produced. And the seed that fell on good soil represents those who hear and accept God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, and, or even 100 times as much as it had been planted. Now, in this parable, we are the farmers. We are the ones who sow seeds. That is our only responsibility. We sow seeds. We aren't responsible for where the seeds land. That is, that is, we aren't responsible for the kind of soil the seeds land on. We just sow seeds. And if we put this parable together with Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, sometimes we water seeds that someone else has already planted. But for the rest of today, let's combine both with both the sowing of and the watering of seeds into one. And just leave it at we sow seeds. That's it. In a nutshell. That's evangelism. We sow seeds. It was an ordinary day in my mind. I walked into the bank to make a deposit. And as the teller greeted me, she said, Chris, can I ask you a question? And then almost without pausing, almost at a whisper, she added, a religious question. <laughs> of course, ask away. That's my favorite time, type of question. Where do people go when they die? This was it. It was the kind of divine appointment that I like. Strike that. It's the kind of divine appointment that I love because it obviously had been set up by God, right? But in reality, this moment didn't just come out of the blue. Notice that she called me by name. You can probably guess that she knew she was talking to a pastor. This moment came after months of sowing seeds, months of building the kind of relationship, one seed at a time, where she would trust me with this kind of question. And even still, she didn't get saved in that moment. I just watered the seeds that had already been planted that God was clearly bringing growth from. That is evangelism. We 
sow seeds. Let's say it together. We sow seeds. Now, if you, if you don't, hang on. We're going to talk about seeds. No, if you don't know what I know, what I'm talking about when I say we sow seeds, hang on. We're going to talk about seeds next week. But it's really that simple. We sow seeds. And I say it's that simple because it's completely true. At the same time, we have to acknowledge that we live in a really complex world, much more complex than it used to be. Okay, hang on. I'm going to mix metaphors for a moment. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us that uh, as Christ followers, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hill type that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. We, Christ followers, individually and collectively as the church, are the light of the world. Up until the 1960s or so, our culture was moored to the truth of God's word. That's not to say that everyone believed in the Judeo-Christian values that our nation was founded on, but there was almost universal agreement that Judeo-Christian values were good for our society, whether you believed them or not. Which means just by peer pressure alone, the activities of the dark, what we call in the church sin, were relegated out of the mainstream into the fringes because we all, even unbelievers, generally agreed that on what was right and what was wrong. We also had general agreement that the activities of the dark should remain in the dark. And then the 1960s hit. And we began to untie our culture from its Judeo-Christian moorings. And by the time we hit the last decade, our culture was clearly lost at sea. And before anyone starts pointing fingers, as Christ followers, we can't really blame all of that on those outside of the church. We, we weren't really very good at actually living the way we say we did in this leave it to beaver world. We still aren't for the record. But our hypocrisy contributed to a disillusionment with Christianity that encouraged people to look elsewhere for answers. The result of which was a mainstreaming of the fringe. Things that would previously have been done in shame, only in the dark, were now celebrated in the light of day. We all see this continuing to work its way out in our culture right now. With little to no agreement on what is right and what is wrong, our culture is trying to redefine or rewrite truth. But the darker it gets, the starker the contrast between the light and the dark. Let's look at this another way. I think we can all agree that the cross is the dividing line between Christ followers and non-Christ followers. What makes us Christ followers is our surrender to Jesus, to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. With that as our dividing line, our culture has always had people who are very interested in what Jesus has to offer. We've also always had people who are somewhat interested in what Jesus has to offer. And we've always had people who are not interested at all in what Jesus has to offer. But prior to the 60s, the noise or distraction of our culture was pretty limited. The Gallup organization reports that 90% of Americans identified themselves as Christians in the 1950s. 
which means that 90% of our culture was shaped by Judeo-Christian values, leaving about 10% for disinformation and misinformation and whatever other noise might distract from the light. But when the 60s hit, things began to change, bringing us to today. As of 2021, estimates say that only 63% of Christians, of Americans, identify them as Christians. 63% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. Which, by the way, identifying as a Christian and truly living a Christ-surrendered life are two different things. So I wouldn't put that at a strong 63%. The result of this cultural unmooring from our Judeo-Christian values means that fewer people are very interested in exploring Christ. Fewer people are somewhat interested in exploring Christ. And more and more people are not interested at all. Add to that all of the noise, the disinformation, the misinformation, the other options available in our culture. That means we are sowing seed on the path, more of that than ever before. People's hearts are hard. Let's layer the four soils from the parable of the sawyer over this graphic. Uh, prior to the 60s, more soil had already been cultivated and was ready for seed. Now that dynamic has changed drastically. More and more people's hearts have been hardened to truth. And yet, even people far from Christ can sense that something is wrong. That we're at sea. We're lost at sea. The Titanic is going down and people are reaching for something to latch onto. They just don't know how to tell the difference between something that will save them and something that will sink them. You know what hasn't changed in all of that time? Our job. We aren't responsible for the state of the soil. That's God's responsibility. We're just responsible to sow seed. And because we're not God, most of the time we have no idea the state of the soil in someone's life anyway. Most of the time we don't get to see the other seed that's already been sown in someone's life. We don't get to see the work he's doing in the soil. We just sow. What all this means, though, is that the process of evangelism often takes much longer than it used to. When we all agreed on what was right and wrong, the journey to the cross was a little more black and white. We had more common ground on which to build a case for truth. Now, that common ground is gone with the wind. And people have been burned by pseudo-truth so many times while being indoctrinated that we have the pseudo-truth that the, the journey from the dark to the light leaves people stumbling around in the dark much longer. It takes much longer to identify common ground on which to build the case for truth. But the good news for us is that people are desperate for the light. As the light of the world, the more faithfully we live surrendered lives, the more we become like Jesus, the, more, the, the brighter the light of Jesus shines through us. And for those searching for the light, the, the soil that we sow, the seeds that we sow act like little light bombs leading the way to Jesus. It just takes more light bombs today for them to find their way to the cross. As I said, it's simple, pretty straightforward. It's those darn fears that get in the way and keep something really simple seem like it isn't. You know, the fear of starting what could be an awkward conversation the fear of not 
knowing what to say or even saying the wrong thing, the fear of starting an argument, the fear of not knowing the answers to their questions or getting in over your head and trying to defend something that you don't know enough about, only to end up offending them in the end. So now that we all know what evangelism is, let's spend the rest of our time looking at some of the myths those fears have propped up over the years. And the, the first myth is that evangelism is a destination. Evangelism is a destination. I'd guess that this is how most of us over the age of 50 think. As we've, as we've already discovered, we grew up with an altar call. Billy Graham's altar calls are the most famous, but they were common in most churches for many, many, many years. The, the, the myth is that evangelism is what happens in that immediate conversion moment. I was blind, but now I see. One problem with this idea is that it places all of the focus on reaping, not sowing. Which means that in order to evangelize, we all need to know the four spiritual laws so that we can help people navigate this before and after experience. I'm not a betting man, but I'd be willing to bet that even those of you who have heard of the four spiritual laws don't remember them at all. Let me quickly run through them so that we're all on the same page. The first of these four laws is that God loves you and created you to know him personally. But, number two, man is sinful and separated from God, so we cannot know him personally or experience his love. However, number three, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him alone, we can know God personally and experience God's love. And number four, to accept Jesus as the solution, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Then we can know God personally and experience his love. Once we surrender our lives to Jesus, we exchange our self-directed life for a life directed by Jesus. And then in that immediate conversion moment, you lead, you lead said sinner through the sinner's prayer. By the way, there are verses associated with these four laws as well as a little more explanation, and if you're interested, you can Google them. That's what an immediate conversion moment looks like. What feeds our fear is that we don't know all of that or won't remember it in the moment, so we won't know what to say. Again, the myth is that, is that evangelism is that destination, that it stands alone and is not a part of the process of discipleship. And it's only after someone accepts Jesus as their savior that they begin the process of discipleship. Now maybe we've contributed to that idea because historically we only tend to count conversions rather than interactions, which is the wrong thing to count because we're not responsible for conversions. God is. Jesus didn't tell us to go into the world and make converts. He told us to make disciples. Converts change their minds, disciples change their lives. And what we've seen so far today, what I'm trying to illustrate is that evangelism actually begins much earlier than that immediate conversion moment and has become part of the discipleship process of which that step of immediate conversion might play a part. But it isn't the most common part of sowing seeds. Most of our sowing happens long before this moment. 
But what the capital C church is seeing more and more of is what Craig Grishel in his book, Lead Like It Matters, describes as an in-process conversion. People are asking more questions, more complicated questions than they did in years past before they decide to commit their lives to Jesus. And they don't want bumper sticker answers. They don't want to hear superficial Christian talk, no Christianese. As Craig writes, when a person doubts God because they lost a baby, they don't want an easy Christian answer like, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. We need to leave room for their doubt. God can handle their doubt. Sometimes it's best if we don't have the answers and we just hurt with them while God does his perfect work. And while their conversion is in process, God is doing other things in their lives as well, especially with the rise of online church. Many of these in-process people are learning with us on Sunday mornings, in person and online. They are attending church and the word of God is impacting them before they are saved as we think, traditionally think about it. The result of which is they slowly become followers without that instant conversion moment. It just clicks over time and one day they realize that at some point they began to believe. You know the Bible doesn't say one word about a sinner's prayer. But in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, Paul and Silas do tell their jailer to believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It isn't the prayer that saves us. It's belief in Jesus that saves us. And sometimes belief comes in an instant and sometimes it develops over time as part of the discipleship process. I will say, though, that what the sinner's prayer does do is give us a moment to memorialize so that later when Satan asks the question, are you sure you're saved? We can remember that moment to fight off doubt. One of the weaknesses of the in-process conversion is not having a moment to recall. Okay, the second myth of evangelism is that it is our job to defend God. It's our job to defend God. Uh, we call the defense of the Bible, of God, or the Bible, or Jesus, or whatever, apologetics. Apologists answer the kinds of questions we're afraid that we don't know the answers to. Like, if God is good, why does he allow evil to exist? Uh, how can a loving God send people to hell? Don't all religions point to the same God? How can Jesus be the only way? You can admit it, those kinds of questions scare us into silence. Just thinking about it makes our palms sweat. These are some, just some of the complex questions that people are seeking answers to before they sign on the dotted line of Christianity. And having been indoctrinated by our culture for their entire lives, the younger generations are also looking for answers regarding how women and those in the LGBTQ community are treated by the church before they commit to anything. It isn't our job to defend God. And it isn't our job to get defensive on God's behalf. God knows how to defend himself. We do not have to have all of the answers. And sometimes, honestly, sometimes it's just better that we don't. I'd suggest it's better to have no answer at all than to try to give a bad answer to someone's honest question. In two weeks, we're going to talk specifically about these kinds of conversations, so hang on. 
But no matter how little you think you know, consider that you know far more than the very first missionary. We find her story in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of, of John. Jesus and, and the disciples were on their way back to Galilee via Samaria. And about noontime, Jesus found himself with a moment alone at the communal well of, a village, of the village of Sychar. As a Samaritan woman with a checkered past approaches for water. In their interaction, she finds the living water of forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus. And then she goes off telling everyone she met about Jesus. She knew nothing about theology, nothing about apologetics. She knew next to nothing about Jesus. The only thing she knew was how he had impacted her story. As long as you know how Jesus has impacted your story, you have everything you need to share with someone else. And we'll talk about that more in the weeks to come. It is very likely in our current culture that you will be asked a question you don't have the answer to. It's always okay to say you're asking great questions. I don't have, the, I don't have those answers. But I would love to look for the answers with you. Don't allow yourself to be baited into a pointless argument. It's always okay to disengage and, and, and agree to disagree agreeably. You will never argue someone into the arms of Jesus. God can use, even use your respectful disengagement to cultivate hard soil as he prepares it for the, t the next time someone sows seed. Remember, evangelism is a process. You're planting seeds. One of those seeds can be the humility of not knowing. If you handle this one right, you'll have more opportunities to sow seeds with this person. Part of the, the sowing seeds process is building a foundation of trust. You want them over time to see you as someone they can trust to process these deeper issues with. And not knowing the answer buys you time. Once you get a sense of what their questions are, you can do a little digging as you educate yourself. And even then, don't just give them the answers, lead them to the answers. This is especially helpful for those of you who are worried about pushing your truth on someone else. They aren't your questions, and you're only helping them find the answers. God can do the rest. Defending the gospel this way is a huge paradigm shift for those of us who are older, who have grown up in the church. Back in our day, when we still walked uphill both ways to school, no one was really asking these kinds of questions. When we didn't understand something in the Bible, we were taught to just take it by faith. The Bible says it, so we, that's enough. We just believe and move on. Which means that we don't feel very prepared when it comes to defending the hard truths that we find in God's word. Issues like what God says about life and sexuality. It's a hard mental shift to move from taking it by faith to defending the faith. But take it by faith or the Bible says so doesn't work as an answer anymore. Our culture has successfully trained people to discount the authority of the Bible. And restoring the authority doesn't happen until later in the discipleship process. But as we'll see more in the weeks to come, we are called to be able to defend or give an explanation for how faith changes everything about who we are and how we live. And 
even if you never find the answers, let God do his job. He can defend himself. Evangelism myth number three is that we should judge people for their sin. We should judge people for their sin. Admittedly, most of us don't judge people to their faces. We like to judge from the safety that distance provides. But make no, make no mistake about it, we like to throw storm, stones. Regardless of what you might believe politically, none of us likes the culture of politics. None of us likes what's happening in our schools. None of us likes, the, likes having crap shoved down our throats everywhere we turn. And as a defense mechanism, we judge. We make them the enemy of us. Unfortunately, this reaction isn't compatible with life as ambassadors of God's kingdom, even from afar. Now, this is where it gets a little confusing for us here in the U.S. We are citizens of heaven living as ambassadors of our heavenly father, but called out of the muck and mire of this world. And here in the United States, we are also citizens who have rights, which includes the right to argue for a return to Judeo-Christian values. However, our citizenship in heaven always trumps our American citizenship. And our behavior when we argue must always be consistent with the values of heaven, remembering that our fight is with the systems of this world, not the people of this world. When we get this mixed up and we judge the people instead of the systems, the, that judgment infects the seeds we sow. When we judge people, we put up barriers between someone else and the cross. We make it harder for them to see Jesus because we're in the way. Again, if you think of the cross as the dividing line, on that side of the cross, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, that it isn't our responsibility to judge those outside of the church. That changes on this side of the cross. In the context of loving community, we are called to judge the sin of our brothers and sisters as we call them to remember who they are in Christ. On that side of the cross, people do not have the power to escape the pressure to conform to the systems of the world that are under the control of Satan. Systems that are violently opposed to the kingdom of God. Most of the people on that side of the cross can sense that something isn't right if they slow down enough to think about it. Although busyness is also a tool of the enemy so uh, that where it wears people out so they don't have the space for introspection. But on that side of the cross, they don't have the wisdom and the power of heaven to lift themselves out of the mire. They don't have the wisdom and the power to even recognize that it's mire. Which gives us great opportunities on behalf of our kingdom because on this side of the cross, we do have access to the power that can lift us out of the mire. People on that side of the cross need our compassion. Mind, soul, and body confusion about everything rules their thinking. Our compassion will be the seeds God uses to cultivate their soil, not our judgment. On this side of the cross, again, in the context of community, people need accountability to stay free from the mire of the culture. 
the truth here is that only God has the authority to judge the world and the power to call people to repentance. Kindness and compassion bathed in prayer are the most effective tools we have for sowing seeds. Okay, one more for today. Evangelism myth number four is that salvation is about fire insurance. Salvation is about fire insurance. That is, salvation is a get-out-of-hell-free card. It is certainly true that salvation keeps us out of hell. But this is only one aspect of salvation, and in today's culture, won't get you very far as an argument anyway. According to Pew Research, only 62% of U.S. adults say they believe in hell. When you consider that only 63% of Americans identify as Christian, where does that get-out-of-hell-free argument get you anyway? In fact, 58% of Christians say that multiple religions will get you to heaven. So again, while it is true that salvation keeps us out of hell, in today's culture, we will be more effective at communicating the gospel if we focus on the truth that salvation is about life assurance. That Jesus brings us to life now. A life that will last all of eternity. But we don't have to wait for eternity to experience the benefits of that life. Our relationship with Jesus comes with the power to live free of the burdens of this world. Uh, the bondage of this world now. It's a life that gives us real help for real problems. A life that actually makes sense in a world God mad. And offers love in the context of deep community. Now, there are more myths, but this is enough for today. Let's get to your homework. We've just come out of a prayer series. Another evangelism truth is that everything we've talked about today is rooted in a spiritual battle. The battle will be won or lost on our knees. So for this week, focus your prayers on the right battlefield as you pray that God would lead you to seed sowing opportunities. Pray that he would cultivate the, that soil in advance so that your seeds have the greatest opportunity to take root. Pray that you would recognize the divine appointments, large and small, that he has prepared for you to sow seed. Pray that he would give you boldness. In fact, let's begin praying now. You know, it, it is very likely that here in this room right at this moment, even online watching, that there are people watching who are on what I've called that side of the cross. People who um, have never surrendered their lives to Jesus. Maybe because uh, you've got a lot of questions that, that you want answers to. Maybe because you're just not willing to surrender, maybe because, uh, who knows? But today, something has clicked. And you realize that God is inviting you to explore a life with Jesus more deeply. It's really simple. Believe in the name of Jesus Christ. 
believe that he came to pay the penalty for your sin that separated you from the possibility of a relationship with the God of the universe. A God who loves you more than you will ever understand on this side of heaven. Believe that he came and paid that price so that you could have a relationship with God in life now and ever after. Believe in Jesus. And uh, in your heart, in this moment, all you have to do is say, yes, I believe. I would suggest that after the service you let us know because we can help you on that journey. But all you have to do is say yes right now. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit will come into you and make you like new. You will have the power to live a completely different life. The power to walk away from the sin and the bondage of this world. It all begins with a yes. The Bible teaches that at the moment that we say yes, we become new creations. The old has passed and the new has come. And we now walk in the light, completely changed. People on a journey to become like Jesus. Now here, here in the room, there are also people who have already made that decision. And for you, this is your moment to begin letting God speak to your heart about the kinds of seeds that you can sow. Let him speak to your heart about living a life not filled with fear, but with power of mind, self-control, so that we aren't ashamed to testify about Jesus. That's what, the apost- the, uh, that's what uh, Peter said. Father, may we boldly proclaim through our lives that Jesus saves. And as we do, we invite you to draw people to yourself. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions on your own or with others will help the truth of God's word begin to shape your life as you grow to be like Jesus. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of the faithful giving of people who called Dayspring their home church. God's work in their lives has left them changed, has made them more like Jesus and they have come to understand how God uses their generosity to encourage others to become like Jesus as well. So if you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. We count it a privilege to play a small part in God's perfect work in you today. For those of you who would like to start giving, 
we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Until we meet again, I am praying that God would give you opportunities to use your influence for the glory of his kingdom. And one more thing, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that's appropriate. Even more, thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. If this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives. So keep sowing.